while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to offer incense, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel and proclaimed against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the holy places who offer incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. So begins one of the strangest stories in the entire Old Testament, told in the 13th chapter of the first book of Kings. The story is clearly told from a one-sided perspective, from the point of view of the southern kingdom in Judah, and from the point of view of those who declared that the only proper place to worship God was in the temple at Jerusalem. But just as clearly, not everyone saw matters in the same way. Certainly the people who lived and worked and worshipped at Bethel would not have agreed with the assumptions behind this story. Neither would have Jeroboam, the king who ruled in the north. We might not agree with that other point of view, of course, but it might be fascinating to hear it, so I think I'm going to tell it. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 2.1 The Old Prophet Bethel was a holy place. Everyone knew it. I mean, the name of the place meant House of El, and El was the name of a very powerful god respected by all the people. There was a great standing stone there. It weighed many tons, and the story was that it had been put in place by the patriarch Jacob, after he'd had a dream and seen the truth, that this place was actually a secret portal to the house of El in the heavens. So, as long as anyone could remember, people had come from all around to worship God at Bethel. They would marvel at the great stone and wonder how it was possible that Jacob could have set it up himself. They would make their offerings at the old stone altar. People said that it had been built by Jacob too, and feast on their portions with their family. They would also come to seek a word or a prophecy from El. And that was where the old prophet came in. He lived nearby and would set up shop every day when the people came into the holy place. After they had offered their sacrifices, the people would come and visit his little booth. They would ask him the questions that burned on their hearts. Will I be able to marry this woman? Will the olive harvest be good this year? Will my father recover from his illness? That kind of thing. And he would give them the God's answer. For the simple questions, the 
yes-no type questions, he would usually employ the urim and the thummim, a pair of oddly shaped stones that he kept in a pouch on his breastpiece. He would cast them for the petitioners and read the answer for them. But he really relished in the more complicated questions. For them, he would consult the god, and El would inspire him to give answers. Of course, it always worked best when he answered the questions in ambiguous ways. It was also way more fun that way. People would leave thinking that they had one answer, and only later realize that they'd gotten another. You will get what you deserve. He'd once told a man who'd asked if he would get a fair price for his barley. The man left happy. He shouldn't have. He charged more for the complicated answers, of course, but he often did well enough from the Urim and Thummim answers, too, so that overall he had made a good living at the sanctuary of Bethel over the years. He really couldn't complain. He'd been able to raise a family on it. He had two sons, who he was training to take up the family trade some day. But then David had come along. He was a nobody, really, just the youngest son of a nothing family in the hill country of Judah. But he was handsome and a ruthless fighter. And somehow he had managed to come to power in the south and then consolidate his rule over the territory around Bethel and even farther north as well. David might have been an effective warrior, but he had no respect for the old ways. And he certainly didn't respect the hallowed sanctuaries in places like Bethel. And when he conquered a new city called Jerusalem, he tried to establish a new kind of worship there. He took the traditions of the Jebusite people who lived in the city and combined them with the faith of his people in the hills and set up an altar to their god named Yahweh. He even made the Jebusite priest, a man named Zadok, the great priest of the god Yahweh. That, in itself, had not been a problem for the old prophet. There had always been rival sanctuaries and high places. They would come and go, with some becoming very popular for a few seasons. But Bethel was an ancient holy place, and somehow people always found their way back here. The business always came back to town. The old prophet's problems really started when David died and passed his kingdom on to his son, Solomon. Solomon was not the fighter that David had been, but, by El's grace, he didn't need to be. The region had gone through an unusual time of peace, perhaps because of all of the treaties Solomon had made with his neighbors by marrying their daughters. What Solomon was, however, was a ruthless administrator. He enslaved half the countryside for his projects the biggest of which was a new sanctuary for Yahweh in Jerusalem. The place got rave reviews. It was big, it was beautiful, 
an entire building made all out of stone. People went up just to see it. That was when the old prophet began to experience some difficulties. The priests in Jerusalem began to preach that their god, Yahweh, was the same god who was worshipped at Bethel. So why go to Bethel anymore? Jerusalem could be a one-stop shop, conveniently serving all your worshipping needs. And there was just enough resemblance for the people to buy the story, too. Yahweh, like El, was apparently an invisible deity, or at least one who didn't like to have his picture taken or statues made of him. So it wasn't as if anyone could tell them apart just by looking. There was one key difference, however. At least it was important to a lot of people in the North. El, though invisible, had always been said to ride on a calf, a sign of his strength and power. So in his sanctuaries, the worshippers would always know that he was invisibly enthroned above the great bronze calf that would be set up there. It was how they knew that he was there. It was tradition, and, in the mind of the old prophet, tradition mattered. This Judean god, this Yahweh, however, didn't ride around on a calf. He rode on the backs of cherubim, winged heavenly creatures with many faces. I mean, it was ridiculous. Everyone knew that real gods rode calves, but that is what those weird southerners believed. So, in this temple in Jerusalem, rather than a good old-fashioned bronze calf, King Solomon had set up a great golden box, topped with golden cherubim. By all accounts, at least the ones the old prophet heard, it was a gaudy mess. But he guessed that there were some people who liked that kind of thing. People, buying into this idea that El and Yahweh were in fact the same deity, started to go up to Jerusalem more often, especially when Solomon put on his big sacrifices and festivals. People do like to be entertained. The old prophet watched as his beloved sanctuary at Bethel fell into disuse and disrepair. But he vowed that he would never go up to Jerusalem, and not that he could really afford the journey these days, as his revenues fell to almost nothing. Well, presumably the prophets in Jerusalem did a booming business. But eventually King Solomon went the way of all flesh. By the time it happened, the old prophet at Bethel had become the very old prophet at Bethel. But when he heard the news that the king was dead, he danced in ecstasy as if he were a lad of but nine years. He knew in his heart that something was about to change, and he knew that it was a word from El. This was confirmed when it turned out that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was an even worse ruler than his father had been. Before long, the region around Bethel and all of the north were up in arms against him. 
they were led in their revolt by a charismatic young leader named Jeroboam. So it was that the north broke away from the south, and Jeroboam was crowned king. By this time the old prophet was far too old to care about the politics of the situation, apart from the one thing that mattered very much to him, Jeroboam's religious policy. One of the king's first acts was to finally restore the old sanctuary in his territories that had fallen into decay over the last decades. It was the happiest day of the old prophet's life when he saw the king's builders arrive in Bethel to repair the old building and rebuild the old altar. Best of all, they brought with them a brand new calf, cast out of beautiful gold, to be set up in the center of the sanctuary, a place where the great god El could be invisibly enthroned once again. Before long, the old prophet was delighted to see the pilgrims flock back to the holy site. He rejoiced to see smoke rise again from the altar almost every day. He enjoyed the party atmosphere as families sat down together to dine on their portions of the lambs, calves, and birds that they had brought. They were often in such a good mood that they joyfully invited him to share in their feasts. And every night he went to sleep content. His purse was heavy with the silver his prophecies had earned him. And the sweet smell of burnt flesh was in his nostrils. Life was good again. And he had King Jeroboam to thank for it. Jeroboam himself came down to Bethel on the day that the new golden calf and the other improvements were dedicated. He must have brought a dozen sacrificial animals with him. It was glorious, blood flowing everywhere, and the people flocked from all over the countryside to see the spectacle and join in the feast that the king would give afterwards. The old prophet was up before dawn, welcoming people to his booth, casting the Urim and the Thummim, collecting generous gifts from the supplicants. Even his sons were kept busy with the more routine questions. Happy days were here again. And then, right in the middle of the festivities, at the very moment when Jeroboam was holding the knife at the throat of the fifth and biggest bull so far, there was a disturbance at the edge of the crowd. A wild-eyed young man wearing a rough coat spun out of camel hair pushed his way to the front. He was so angry that you could see him visibly shaking from the other side of the circle around the altar. He was also clearly in that state of ecstasy that prophets often go into when they speak a word of their God. The old prophet shuddered. He had a bad feeling about this. Oh, altar, accursed altar, I bring you a word from Yahweh. The new arrival screamed as foam and spittle flew from his mouth. 
I declare, O altar, that you will be broken down stone by stone and your ashes spread out on the ground. Yahweh has spoken. His accent, and of course his use of the name of Jerusalem's God, immediately marked him as a southerner in everyone's mind. No doubt from Jerusalem or somewhere nearby. Jeroboam was furious. He immediately called out to his bodyguard, pointing at the man. Seize him, he cried. But almost as soon as he had said it, the old prophet could tell that the king was having second thoughts. His accusing finger dropped. He was still a new king, still consolidating his power. And he knew that there were some under his domain who had bought into the line coming out of Jerusalem that Yahweh and El were one and the same God. To kill this prophet from the south might be satisfying, but he also risked creating a martyr out of him and creating sympathy for his position. His government was young, and he still had some reluctant subjects. The king thought that it might be better to win this prophet to his side, to ply him with food and drink and gifts, and get him to recant his dire prophecies in that way. You are mistaken, young man, he said in a honeyed voice. This is a holy sanctuary that has stood here from ancient times. Come, a feast has been prepared. Sit with me and we will discuss your errors like civilized men. I also think that there are a few little goodies in my tent. I'd love to offer you some gifts. The young southern prophet seemed horrified. Yahweh forbid it, he cried. I can't do that. I can't do that because, uh, uh, because I made a vow. That's right, a vow. I, uh, I promised Yahweh that I would not eat or drink in this accursed place and that I would return home by a different route than the one by which I came. So, you see, I cannot accept your gifts. Not even if you were to give me half your kingdom. Uh, you weren't going to give me half your kingdom, by the way, were you? Oh, no, no, I, I just can't do it. And with that, he turned and fled, as if the god himself were chasing him. prophet didn't have much time to react. He knew that he had to act quickly, and he knew exactly what he had to do. He called to his sons and had them quickly saddle the donkey. He knew the whole area around Bethel like the back of his hand. If the young prophet were returning south by a different road than the one he had come by, then the old prophet had a pretty good idea where he might find him. the young prophet as he rested under an oak tree. 
While he had written, the old prophet had decided exactly what he needed to say. Are you the man who came from Jerusalem to Bethel, who cursed the altar? I've got to tell you, that was magnificent. I am a fan. I know prophecy. Bit of an amateur prophet myself, in fact. And that has got to be the best one I've heard in a long time. Let me shake your hand. Say, you would truly honor me and my family if you were to come and dine at our house this night. It's just over that hill. Won't you please come? As expected, the southerner was flattered, but he regretfully refused. No doubt, feeling a rumble in his stomach. He repeated the words that he had said to the king. Any prophet knew that once you had spoken of a vow aloud, there was no going back on it. He had to follow through on what he had said. But the prophet was ready for that. A vow? Oh, don't worry about that. Why, it was the God himself who sent me to find you. That's right, I received a word from El Yahweh saying that you had done so well that he released you from the vow that you had made. You can come. And that was all it took. It was so easy. The young prophet was very hungry after all. The old prophet got down from his mount and put the young man in his place. He took the donkey by its lead and led the man back into his home as if he were a conquering hero. And did they feast that night? The wine flowed, the sacrificial meat that the sons had obtained from the priests at Bethel had been boiled to perfection. The olives and the figs were plump and juicy. The young prophet fell asleep by the fire, thoroughly inebriated, and with a self-satisfied smile on his lips. The next morning, when the young prophet was ready to go, the old prophet offered him his own donkey to speed him on his way. <laughs> what did he care? He knew that he would get it back. The donkey was saddled and the man quickly packed up his belongings. It was as he was saying his final goodbyes that the old prophet dropped his bomb. He embraced the man and put his mouth by his ear. By the way, he said, it seems that I was wrong. Your God has spoken to me again. You are not released from your vow. And because you have eaten and drunk in this place, be certain that you will never return home in one piece. He presented the man his saddest face, full of regret. Inside, he was smiling as he watched every bit of color drain from the man's face. He was literally shaking as he left. donkey returned to its stall before nightfall. It looked as if it had been spooked, but otherwise seemed unharmed. 
it took a few days for news to come in about the fate of the young prophet. But eventually a few local farmers came by the Bethel Sanctuary with the story of a body that they had found by the side of a goat track that they had been following. The old prophet knew immediately that it was his man. He questioned them, then immediately returned home to saddle his faithful donkey. The remains were in a sorry state when he found them. The body had been chewed on by a number of scavengers, but he recognized the man's clothes immediately. As he tied the remains onto the back of his mount, he thought of the story that he would tell. He imagined that the prophet had likely been despondent and had gotten lost in the unfamiliar territory. How he had expired, he didn't really know. But if he had been attacked by a, a lion, yes, a lion, that would make a story that people would remember. The young prophet was laid in the old prophet's own family tomb with great honor, and the story of his death spread far and wide. When the old prophet died, he was buried there too. In time, his tomb would become another local feature, frequented by the pilgrims, and the story of the two men who had saved the sanctuary at Bethel from slander and disrespect would never be forgotten. Adversaries in life, they became family in death. And so it remained for many generations until a king of Jerusalem named Josiah, may he be cursed by El forever, eventually destroyed the ancient sanctuary at Bethel forever. story of the prophet who went to Bethel, as it is told in the book of Kings, reflects the attitude of the time when it was written more than it reflects the time in which it is set. It specifically names a king of Judah, Josiah, who would not be born for over a century. Even more important, it takes for granted an idea that was almost certainly not generally accepted before Josiah's time that all worship of Israel's God should be centralized in Jerusalem, and that this was clearly what God wanted. For centuries before the time of Josiah, God, and honestly various gods, had been worshipped in a number of so-called high places spread all over the countryside. Bethel was one such sanctuary of great antiquity. Many kings before Josiah had tolerated and even encouraged and participated in worship in these places. They are all condemned for this by the writers of the books of kings, but in their own time, 
these kings likely only saw what they were doing as business as usual. The ideas that later became mainline biblical ideas, that there was only one God and only one appropriate place to worship him, only developed slowly over time. If you want to understand it in religious terms, you might say that God only revealed God's self to his people slowly, only revealing as much as they could accept in their particular states of development. The historical events behind this story are fairly well known. The northern kingdom of Israel did break off from the south following the reign of King Solomon. The first king in the north was likely Jeroboam, and it does seem quite likely that he would have built up some sanctuaries in his territories as a way to consolidate his rule. And yes, this might have gotten some people in Jerusalem upset, as they were used to being the most important place of worship in the land. Whether the religious confrontation between North and South played out exactly like described in the Book of Kings, that is harder to establish from an historical point of view. Assuming that some sort of conflict did take place, I just wanted to try to tell the story as it might have been told in the North, until later the story was taken over by writers in the South, the compilers of the Book of Kings, and included in their book as a bit of religious and political propaganda designed for a later age. Okay, that is our first episode of the second season. If you enjoyed it, please come back next time for another take on an ancient biblical story. Tell other people and rate and review this episode on iTunes or on some other platform to help other people find it. Our theme music is Ada. And the mood music for this episode is Tabuk. Music is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. This is Retelling the Bible. I am your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. Send your requests, comments, and questions to at Retelling Bible on Twitter or to our Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes and commentary for this episode will be posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Above all, just keep listening. <laughs>